0: decade-long emotional struggle that I would go through afterwards to try to find meaning in this second life was far more challenging than the experience of dying.
1: many of you know that I've tested a few products uh, that have had a benefit in my life. And so I'm willing to promote them to you guys. And the latest product that I've tested is a neurostimulation device called Halo. Halo will actually electrically stimulate the movement area of your brain to help you improve your movement performance. It can be used for CrossFit applications or rucking or running. And I recently did a podcast with the founder, Dr. Daniel Chow. So you can check it out there to learn more, but at any rate, the company has graciously offered a discount to our listeners, so you can get $125 off the Halo. And I really want you guys to try this product because it works. It's being used by some professional sports teams. It's being used by some Olympians, like the Olympic bike team, and uh, like I said, mentioned CrossFitters and the Navy SEALs are using this product now as well. And so, in order to get $125 off the Halo Sport, go to Halo. Neuro.com, HaloNeuro.com, and use the promo code UnbeatableMind one two five. Go to HaloNeuro.com, and on checkout enter the code Unbeatable one two five. That's Unbeatable one two five. So check it out, HaloNeuro.com, Unbeatable one two five. You're gonna love this product if you're into performance gain. Hoo Divine out. Hi, this is Mark Divine with the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Welcome back. So glad you could join me today. I'm super stoked to do today's interview with Major Joshua Mance, Major Retired Joshua Mance. Um, So please stay on the line for the whole thing. This is going to be an incredible show. But before I start, let me let you know that if you've been looking for the podcast on other platforms, we now offer it on Google Play and Stitcher and SoundCloud. You can download it from our website, unbeatablemind.com podcast. It's also available on iTunes. Really appreciate if you could rate it wherever you find it, because that helps other people find the podcast as well. So thanks again. I really appreciate your support. And I want to also mention that the Unbeatable Mind Summit this year is going to be held December 1 to 3. That's the first weekend. It'll be here in California, in sunny San Diego, in a town called Carlsbad, which is about five minutes from SealFit and Unbeulable Headquarters. And this event, um, if you haven't uh, attended or haven't heard about it, it's a three-day event like no other in the country. It offers a combination or an integration of training in the Unbeulable Mind Principles, con- deep connection with a tribe that is you know, committed to self-mastery in service, and some really, really cool speakers that come in from all over the place to talk about the five mountains from their perspective physical development mental and emotional development spiritual and intuition and so we've got a cool lineup of speakers coming this year so every year this program gets better and we already are half enrolled so uh, if you're thinking about coming and want to bring your team or your loved ones or your kids or whatever then uh, go to unbeatablemind.com and you'll see the registration for it there all right on to the more important things so my guest today is, as I mentioned, retired Major Army Major Joshua Mance. Uh, Joshua is a graduate of West Point and an infantry officer in the Army for almost a decade. Josh has a purple heart and a bronze star with valor. He's the author of a book uh, dedicated to emotional trauma and how to overcome it. So we're going to talk about that. And... Um, you know, there's some other interesting things about Josh that I'm not going to get into yet. We'll let the story unfold. But Josh, thanks so much for your time today. Super appreciate your service, and uh, also, you know, the service that you're doing now to help people heal emotionally.
0: Hey, Mark, it's it's a, a pleasure to be here, and and likewise to that. Uh, thanks for having me on the show, and and thanks to you and your entire team for everything you're continuing to
1: do today. Uh, pleasure yeah. to be here. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we talked at length and, you know, I just was deeply inspired by our conversation earlier. And I think, you know, we can kind of go in the same direction. But before we dive into the kind of the meat and potatoes of your work around emotional trauma and what you call uh, understanding your darker soul, you know, let's talk about who you were, (laughs) who you were before before Iraq? Because, you know, clearly as the story unfolds, people will, will appreciate how that changed you so much. But, you know, what, what was your early childhood like? Where did you grow up? Yeah, what were some of the early influences in your life? You know, how did you begin to develop your unbeatable character? Sure. Well, uh, you know, there's
0: there's two major influences in my in my life uh, during high school, uh, you know, and, and growing up. And I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, a uh, smaller town. And, and, and kind of grew up kind of like the all-American boy, you know, like uh, always outside, always, uh, you know, out hiking every weekend and doing a bunch of stuff like that, playing sports. Um, but I, I also grew up in a family of police. Uh, so my my stepfather uh, still does work uh, with the attorney general's office in Pennsylvania. Uh, he had a 25-year police career. Uh, but more importantly, when I, when I got in high school, um, I met the second biggest influence in my life. And decided to join a junior ROTC program. And uh, it just so happened that the guy leading that program had just retired from the Special Forces. Uh, he was a, a Special Forces Sergeant Major in 7th Group. And, was you know, down in South America running counter-drug operations at the height of the drug war. And then this, this guy just retires and goes to this random town in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, and takes over this program. Um, you know, so he'd be landing schnook helicopters in, in our football field and taking, taking our cadets off to these FTXs, you know, so we would have like college ROTCs hopping onto our training. Um, and you know, he, he really, um, really took me under his wing. He knew I was kind of destined for the, the military path and, and both he and my stepfather are two of the people that, that really started to shape me in, in a couple of ways. First, you know, my, my stepfather is a, is a pretty big and intimidating guy. <laughs> um, he's about 6'5", 250, mostly muscle, it has a reputation for having never lost a fight during a 25-year police career. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so I grew up really thinking that this was, that he was just this ultimate, you know, badass kind of guy. And it, it wasn't until I uh, got a little older uh, later in high school where I started to do ride-alongs with him. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when I realized the depth to his character. I, you know, he was ultra empathetic uh, when, when he was on the job. He really made an effort to understand the true challenges that people were facing and, and resolve it without any kind of violence or anything like that. And it, it really, the level of respect That he demonstrated for uh, people from every walk of life was just eye-opening to me, and and really influenced me at a a very young age. Um, Mm. You know, and then similarly, the the special forces sergeant major is the first to really drive home the uh, the importance of understanding culture, understanding language, understanding the capabilities of foreign forces and and how capable they actually are, uh, regardless of their technological capability. Um mm-hmm. so I really kind of came out of high school and entered the academy uh with this deep already having this deep perspective of, of foreign
1: cultures and and kind of the inherent capabilities to people. Well, that's cool. So you had uh these two mentors uh from your stepdad you learned a lot about empathy and respect and the sergeant major about respecting culture and capabilities of others. At what point did you decide at the, uh, you know, a path toward the academy? I mean, West Point is a preeminent leadership academy. Was it always something you wanted to do, or did these guys inspire you to kind of head in that direction?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say my, my, since I was about 12 years old, uh, is when I remember uh, first wanting to go to the academy. And, and my stepfather is the one who planted that seed. You know, I, okay. I wanted to be an athlete. I wanted to go into the military. You know, I wanted to be a good student. And, you know, I basically said, well, at the academy, you can do all three. And and basically from that point on, I was laser focused from the day I set foot in high school and getting into the academy.
1: So you wanted to go be a warrior athlete. West Point was a great place to do it. What were some of the, um, the real insights or lessons in leadership that you learned at the academy? I think uh, listeners would be interested in that. We've all heard about West Point and you know we know it's unrivaled in its ability to cultivate character so what was that like
0: you know that's that's such a west point is such an experience you know it's 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 a it's literally like you step on that train and 4 years later you're hopping off of it and you don't really know what happened until much later <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> you know and there there's there's, there's got to be nonstop like i mean you you're you're from dust to dawn Doing stuff, <laughs> nonstop physical, nonstop athletics, nonstop right. academics, all the discipline and tightening up that goes on.
0: It, it, it absolutely is. You know, there's a, a kind of a standing joke amongst graduates that West Point is a great place to be from, but not a great place to be. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, you don't really realize the value of what it does for you afterwards. And it, the, the thing that shocked me the most about the academy um, is there was a, a relatively minimal focus on military tactical training, right? W- which is, I, you know, I walked into the academy gung-ho thinking it was going to be predominantly military-based, right? A- and uh, I wasn't uh, necessarily prepared for like the Princeton-Harvard level academics mm-hmm. uh, that, that West Point really puts primary emphasis on. Uh, and mm-hmm. and what's, what's interesting about their approach is they, they use what's called the Sayre Method, which is created by the person considered to be the founder of West Point, Colonel Savannah there. And basically at the academy, you you have to study the material in advance on your own. And then you are tested on it the moment that you walk through the classroom door. Hmm. And it's not until after the test that the teacher actually gives you detailed instruction on the material. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a reversal of the normal academic process but it's so valuable after four years of doing that you know it, bottom line is it teaches you to pick up a manual and learn something on your own mm-hmm. right? and and process really complex information
1: and also to do your research before you uh, step foot into the meeting or or you know make some assumptions right? a- absolutely a- absolutely mm. and it, it it's kind of a whirlwind. I mean, it is, it's, it's a whirlwind when you're
0: there, you, you, there, there's a lot of things that you just <laughs> kind of despise about it, but the, 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 it really starts to set in a couple years later. And, and mm-hmm. cause you just don't understand why there's such a, a huge emphasis on academics, you know, and it, it was,
1: it was really hard. To be fair, in your history class, you were studying, you're studying, you know, military battles and military leadership, right? I mean, it wasn't, Right, that there was no no military education.
0: Yeah, for, yeah, absolutely. You know, yes, very detailed kind of military history, which is which is more grounded on the purely conventional uh, side of warfare. You know, which is very different from what we were about to go face, which is this counterinsurgency sure. environment. Right. right, fair enough. But it's it, it, it was a really interesting time at the academy. Um, you know, I was uh, class of two thousand five, and you know, basically nine eleven happened my freshman year. Um so 2 3 months after being in the academy 911 happened and it
1: it wow what did that do to the esprit de corps of the class it you was know, incredible it absolutely changed it, it was like a a
0: new level of seriousness set right. in a, across right. the entire corps you know cuz we knew we were going to war we knew, and not just going to war but being charged with the responsibility of of leading people in that environment you know and, and everything became very real you know i to the point where it was very difficult to not leave the academy you know i wanted nothing more than to drop out of the academy enlist and go down range hmm. right wow. um and the the guilt that kind of set it, it to, to me and i know a lot of my classmates really struggled with the guilt of not being part of the main effort mm-hmm. right you know you're really young you're 20 years old at the time and it's it's really hard to to kind of contain that mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and especially it's it's like several of my friends got killed while i was there at the academy you know their mm-hmm. their names would pop up over an announcement or you know my best friend from high school got killed when i was literally writing a history report in my senior year you know and it it took everything to not um <clears throat> drop out on the list right but it, I'm glad that I didn't you know I, I trusted put put blind trust into uh, my mentors right which some of those were at the academy some were you know my stepfather and, and the sergeant major but it wasn't an accomplishment that that's that's the most interesting thing right it, it was you know you, you think graduating from a place like that would be a you'd be elated at the end and I and I, I wasn't at all it was just like completing a, a, the next step to get
1: downrange, right? It, right. So you completing know. a completing a very long boot camp. You know, it's like okay, right. got that done. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's and, go. You, know, you know? a <laughs> couple of things. A couple of things. I know exactly what you're talking about. About the feeling of not being, you know, in the primary thrust thrust. You know, right. I, I experienced that same thing because I held off for a couple of years before going to Iraq in '04. And those, you know, for good reasons. But for those three years, while all my buddies went, you know, I just was like, it was kind of torture to watch them go downrange. Right. I know what you felt there. The other thing that I think is really interesting is, you know, I, I've noticed this in the, even in the SEAL teams that a lot of people join the military without thinking about their, you know, the possibility that they will not survive. Right. And war, the breakout of war, and watching, you know, peers and, and friends pass on the battlefield in the line of duty, you know, is a real wake-up call. So I imagine, you know, after 9-11, your whole class, all of a sudden, you know, the reality of what it meant to be a warrior and to serve the military, you know, serve the country as a military officer just hit home hard, you know, a lot of self-reflection going on. It
0: it absolutely did, you know, and and what was interesting is we had a, a pretty good percentage of our class who was prior enlisted, Mm -hmm. and some of them, you know, coming from the Ranger Regiment and, you know, other kind of special ops unit or infantry units, and some of those folks really naturally emerged as as kind of the natural leaders within our class. You know, a lot of us would look to them to kind of get a perspective on the real deal and do whatever we could to prepare in whatever way we could. You know, it it was, you know, whether that be going out in smaller groups and studying, tactics and, and, you know, practicing, uh, you know, tactical room clearing or doing whatever it was, we kind of would pull from every ounce of spare time we had, which wasn't much. But it, it wasn't so much the time as like, you know, you talk about the monkey brain, you talk about just kind of, and back then I had no clue what that was. I I, you know, I had no clue how to, how to kind of regulate my physiology and, and my thinking process. And it, it's just, you're, you're in a constant state of this uh, almost just subtle anxiety you know it's yeah, it's uh, yeah. forward looking and
1: ready to go it's a pressure for performance at all levels physically mentally you know emotionally you know the warrior athlete scholar you know has to step up his game and I, I totally get that right. But on, on, the nice part about it is when you get done you've got you know this experience of a very multi-dimensional approach to leading and to you know relating to other human beings which is you know distinctly different than pretty much anyone else any other educational setting right and your and your ability to deal with pressure coming at you from all sides is pretty solid and I'm sure that served you very well as an infantry leader so so what happened after West Point you went to there's an infantry school for officers what was that like and where did you serve what unit and what that you know sure you
0: know, it, it was, you know, coming out of the academy, I, I majored in Arabic. Um, I, I probably mentioned that because it's kind of important. I did that specifically because of 9-11, right? Specifically because I, I kind of, I, I just instinctively knew the how important language would be. Um, and, you know, leaving there, I spent about a year at Fort Benning, Georgia, going through, you know, the, the infantry officer basic course, you know, which is, you know, a week on, you know, it's usually like week on, week off. You're you're in the field for a full week, and then you're back out resetting for uh, the the next week, and it's it's like mm-hmm. that for almost a full year. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's where the that's where the, the kind of the hardcore infantry tactics come into play. Mm-hmm. But like like you said, right, it, the academy and and the approach that they took, even though we didn't understand it at the time, those values, right those approaches really started to just naturally emerge mm-hmm. in this highly complex, learn on the fly, uh, counter environment in Baghdad, you know, and I could not be more thankful <laughs> for the way that we were groomed at the academy because of that. Cause it was, yeah. it, it, it was really, uh, you know, there's nothing standard about that as you well know, right. It, it was, it was very, very, um, you know, every area was different. Every person was different. You know, it's considered the graduate level of warfare for a reason. You know, and, and um, but the academy definitely somehow prepared us for it in ways that I, I did not understand at the time, but do now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and I, I guess the maybe the most powerful thing the, the takeaway is is they they really strive to teach young officers how to think, not what to think. Mm-hmm. Right, and if you can come away with that, that's a pretty significant
1: learning point. Oh, that's yeah, that's incredible and and incredibly powerful when you think about where you know the world is going and how it's um, requiring that exact style of education. You know how to think and how to adapt and how to relate and create, as opposed to stuffing one's head with factual knowledge or you know knowledge that's easily achieved by a quick Google search. (laughs) Right, right, right. Exactly. So you went uh, after infantry school, you were assigned to an infantry division. Which one was that? And where did you deploy?
0: Yep. So I I got assigned to the first cavalry division um, in in Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, And within three months, we were on our way to Baghdad, uh, basically right at the beginning of the surge in 2006. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So the first cat. Did you get a horse when you went there, or how did that work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't give me a horse.
0: I kind of wanted one, but no. Uh, yeah, it was it was all it was all mounted uh, for the most part. But you know, most of the most of the ops we did were were dismounted, uh, and, and you know, because we were operating obviously in a urban environment. You know, pretty close to Sodder
1: City, and and it was. But the, but the cavalry division had armored vehicles, right? Yes. And, yes, and there were but there were different guys who. Drove those, or could you have been assigned to like a an armored, you know, unit? So that in the cavalry, the, the,
0: they're uh, they're basically all armored units. It's it's I a see. it's a full up armored uh, unit. But you know, some of the vehicles are specifically designed to to transport infantry troops and and right. you know efficiently right. drop them
1: into sector, um, huh. and
0: and that's that's basically what we were utilizing at
1: the time so okay and how many how many guys or, or i should say troops men and women did you have kind of in your charge and yeah you know, usually sort of rough size of
0: a platoon element is is around 40 people uh okay. from within an infantry
1: unit at least that's it's kind of a, a rough number to go off of mm-hmm. so you went to solder city i remember solder right he was really stirring up a lot of Insurgent activity in and around Baghdad. So, what was that? What was your operations like over there? <laughs> you know, we were
0: um, we were really on the on the border of Sadr City, right? Um, yeah. Which it, it was one word uh, describes the first couple of weeks of that deployment, and and that's violent. You know, we you know both the the unit that we were replacing and our unit lost people within the first two three weeks.
1: Wow. Was that to sniper fire or to just, you know, IEDs or? It was, it was
0: almost all IEDs. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, our biggest threat by far, by far, uh, were roadside bombs. And, you know, we got hit with those every day and, um, mm-hmm. they're just incredibly, incredibly powerful devices and, and by far our, our biggest threat, you know, we, we, and they're, they're almost impossible to spot, <laughs> you know, it, mm-hmm. it's, but it's like for, for those who haven't been in an environment like that it's it's you know imagine yourself going to new york city for the first time Mm -hmm. as a tourist right and how long would it take you to to start to learn your way around that city Mm. um you know before you start making wrong turns and 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 have no idea where you're going you know before you're relatively fluent in the city it, it would take a while yes you know and now imagine doing that with with roadside bombs going off and sniper threats and 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 everything else so you know, it, it's it's a it's certainly a bit chaotic at first as you're trying to take in the scope of of everything that's happening, uh, so you can start to apply those counterinsurgency techniques uh, and relationship building activities
1: that'll set mm-hmm. you up for success long term. Right. What was your specific mission?
0: <laughs> you know, that is uh, something that molded and shifted almost every day, uh, and mm-hmm. I because it, it, the the unique part about that time was. We had a rough idea of what we were walking into, but the the military as a whole was really just starting to convert into full-blown counterinsurgency operations, right? Mm. And we, we did some basic prep work for that, you know, before we deployed as, as best we could, but it was a lot of uh, on-the-job training, you know, and it was a relatively new environment. Right. Um, a, a lot of the senior leaders didn't necessarily, uh, you know, just military in general didn't necessarily understand the fundamental principles of relationship building and humility right. and, and understanding the the root cause concerns, you know, because this, you, you certainly have to have the capacity to to get violent, uh, you know, at the snap of a finger and, and, and take out right. a threat. But
1: that's really the least of it, <laughs> you know. Right. And still have the discernment to. Recognize, you know, legitimate threats versus non-threats, and the awareness to, you know, be able to take your eyes off yourself and put them on your uh, wounded teammates. And I mean, there's—I agree with you. There's just an enormous complexity to those environments. Right. This podcast is graciously supported by my buddies at Ample, which is my new MRE or meal ready to eat. If you haven't checked out Ample yet, go to amplemeal.com. Now, Ample. It's not just a protein shake, it's a complete meal in a bottle. It includes all the fiber and healthy fats and protein and carbohydrates that you need in the right combinations from the right sources. I love this product, it's become my go-to for baseline nutrition. And I have one a day before my morning training sessions. Life can get a little crazy, but that's okay. And Ample makes eating healthy on the go so much easier. Just add water and three, two, one, go. Now, Ample's offering a 15% discount off your first order. So go to amplemeal.com if you want to try this out. Type in the code UNBEATABLE15. UNBEATABLE15. You can get a 400 or 600 calorie complete meal in a bottle made from superior real food ingredients and it's designed for optimal nutrition for folks like us. It's non-GMO, no artificial crud, no gluten, no soy. Now, they know how much I love this product, and they want you to try it too. So go to amplemeal.com, type in the code UNBEATABLE15, get 15% off your first order. hoo ya! Give it a try. Now, I've kind of led chronologically up to a decisive moment in your life, <clears throat> and I, you know, I wanted the listeners to hear you know, kind of like who you, who you are, who you, you know, were the education, the leadership potential, you know, the, just the solid dude that you are as a leader. And now, you know, let's kind of get into the soft underbelly of life and what happened in April of 2007. Can you uh, describe, you know, the, the incident? Sure. Some detail.
0: Yeah. So, just a, a little background. I, I, one of the things that I was charged with uh, was rebuilding the Iraqi police force that was local to that area. Um, you know, the, the organization was highly infiltrated by insurgents. Minimal resources. They're basically completely ineffective. And it, it was it was critical that we did what we could to repair that, and that they started to become the the face of the operations that we were running mm-hmm. so you know understanding the language and being culturally competent is more powerful than any weapon I ever could have carried mm-hmm. um, and, and you know many nights of conversation with this Iraqi police chief in, in Arabic I finally convinced him to go with me to do a humanitarian mission really at the border of Sadr City and when I when I pointed to him on the map where I wanted to go his face turned white and, you know, he, he basically said, that's outside of our sector. You know, we, we, we can't go there. It's very dangerous, <laughs> you know, very dangerous. We're not going to go. And I, I explained the importance of it to him, you know, we we're, cause we were going up there to drop off school supplies, clothes, stuff like that. Very important that it, it was, this was a joint mission, right? That the Iraqis were the face of it. And, you know, I think through building trust with him, he, he did something that I never thought he would do and he agreed to go with. Mm -hmm. with that, I committed to him that, you know, we would, you know, do everything possible to (laughs) guarantee the safety of his men as as well. And, you know, we went up, we did that, we did that drop. Um, It went off without a hitch. It was great, but suddenly got diverted to another part of the sector. And, and, you know, one of our, one of our units was uh, apparently engaged by an an RPG and we had to go investigate. Mm -hmm. And uh, while we were over there, one of my vehicles noticed a, a suspicious uh, vehicle driving around that, that appeared to be videotaping us. And uh, so we stopped that vehicle. Uh, myself and my senior non-commissioned officer got out of the car and, you know, I was questioning him in Arabic and older gentleman, he didn't seem like the insurgent type. Right. But mm-hmm. sure enough, I look in the back seat and there's a, probably a five or $6,000 video camera <laughs> in the, in the back seat, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to get uh, a playback function on that, and and I'm I'm talking to him in Arabic uh, to to basically confirm or deny if if he's an insurgent. And that's when we were engaged uh, by an enemy sniper, and Mm. not just a regular weapon. (laughs) um, is one of the more high it is one of the highest caliber weapons we've ever seen used uh, uh, on dismounted troops. Uh, The bullet first ripped through the aorta of my senior non commissioned officer. Mm. and killed him almost instantly. Uh, Mm -hmm. and then ricocheted into my thigh and severed my femoral artery. Mm. And if, if you, if you, I mean, there, there's like a couple different ways that I I could kind of walk you through this, but there's a couple different, it was, it was such a bizarre experience because, you know, to fast forward for a second, I, I have perfect recollection, uh, of, of this experience. Mm. Um, vivid detail and and I, I went through a couple different phases mm-hmm. physiological phases that are are pretty bizarre but the the, the first initially was you know and I, I know you're familiar with Grossman's work mm-hmm. uh Dave Grossman on on killing and and on combat mm-hmm. right you know very fortunate that that book was on the required reading list at West Point while I was there because um, I I'll tell you the initial physiological response from that gunshot wound was almost verbatim uh, what he discusses. You know, it, mm. it was auditory distortion and that I could right. only hear the, the shot of the sniper rifle and nothing else. Mm. Um, it was slow motion time. It was fast motion time. Uh, it Really bizarre uh, physiological things going on. Right. You know, and I, I drug Marlon out of the way. Uh, so senior NCO's name was Marlon Harper, uh, right. staff sergeant. Uh, I drug him out of the way. I didn't know I was shot at at, at first. It it just felt like something was wrong. I I, I didn't Mm -hmm. know what. Mm -hmm. You know, I I pulled off his gear and a few seconds later, the the medic arrived. And, and, you know, I I kind of stopped to point out that his medic was only 19 years old. (laughs) And, you know, here's the point where he realized he had two catastrophic injuries to deal with at the same time. Uh, You know, one severed aorta, one severed femoral. And this this nineteen year old kid had to make a a triage decision, and mm-hmm. you know he made a, 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 a he executed the decision perfectly. I mean, he, he he made the decision to ride with me because I, I had a slightly better chance of survival than did Marlin. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's it's still that that nineteen year old kid that's going to have to live with the moral weight of that for the rest of his life, uh, right. which can be difficult. Right. So you know that's
1: kind of the the first phase, but right? You recognized right away that you had a life threatening injury. No, I, I, I'm sorry. You said he he recognized or I did. Yeah, did did he or you? Yeah. I mean, it sounded like you weren't quite sure. You just knew something was wrong.
0: Yeah, so it, it was interesting, Mark. I, I was actually calling up on the radio as I was dragging Marlon with one hand. I was calling on the radio with the other. We have two casualties. We have two casualties. <laughs> you know, I was yelling. And I, I didn't specify that I was the second one. <laughs> so <laughs> so and when I was, I, when I was working on Marlin, I was down on a knee and it was the knee of the leg that had my femoral artery severed. Right. So the blood was spurting off to the left and the medic came in from the right. So, so he couldn't see my injury. And mm-hmm. when this kid gets there, he grabs me and he goes, who's the second casualty, sir. And I said, I am. And I, I, um, at that point, I started to lose. It. I, I um, fell to my left side and and really almost went into this state of subconsciousness almost
1: mm-hmm. for, for, for a few seconds. And this is important, all right? Because I, I think. Just distinguish or differentiate that from unconsciousness. Yep. Um,
0: I could hear echoes of voices around me, I could hear the voices of my men. But more so, I felt very peaceful at that point. There was no pain. There's no, I was just kind of relaxing into a deeper, deeper sleep, deeper, deeper meditative state um, mm. it is, is really what it felt like. And I felt uh, safe, right? A- and the way I describe the feeling is you know, when you're like a kid and you're sick <laughs> and you don't want to go to school. And, uh, you know, mom comes in or your parents come in and they, you know, they give you a cup of tea or whatever. And they say, yeah, it's okay. You stay, stay home today. And you get mm. all excited and you cover back up and, and everything's okay. Mm. It was almost like that kind of feeling, right? Where, where
1: everything just feels like quiet and safe. And did you, did you have the, any thoughts, like cognitive thoughts, like I'm dying and this is what it's like, or did it, was it just this presence it, or this it, awareness? Initially, initially,
0: no. Um, That that does come later. But what was so powerful about this, and what snapped me out of it, is I heard one of my men just scream. You know, it was something like, "Come on, sir!" You know, and and screamed at the top of his lungs, like trying to get me to stay conscious, stay awake. And Mm -hmm. I could, and I remember this vividly. I could hear the pain in his voice, like Mm -hmm. the, the emotional pain. And it it registered for me, even in that state that I can't just sit here and relax. Like I am still the leader of this unit and Mm -hmm. I can't give up on these guys because look at what they're going through to try to, to try to pull me through this. You know, I've got to do my part too, Mm -hmm. right? So, So even this completely degraded, basically worthless state, that spark from the people that you're supporting, that you're leading, that you're with. It was mm. enough to snap me back to full consciousness, wow. right? Wow. That in conjunction with probably right at the same time, I mean, you know, medically speaking, they pulled me into the back of this vehicle. And as they pulled me in, uh, I sat, it, they sat me up and it, it it could have pushed the little remaining blood I had into the chest cavity, um, which also allowed me to regain consciousness, right?
1: So mm. powerful moment. Did you have a, a tourniquet on yet at that point?
0: Yep. The, the medic was just all over it. Uh, he cinched up a tourniquet immediately and then he, he retightened that tourniquet or I, I believe put a second one on actually when, uh, when I was in the back of the vehicle with him and the evacuation process started, you know, and I'll tell you, this is where it kind of converts from that bizarre physiological experience to, you know, the ride to that aid station after I, you know, and again, I, was in a state of full consciousness again at this point, but mm. was so weak that I, I couldn't even unbuckle the the plastic strap on my Kevlar helmet. Mm. you know I felt like I gave blood ten times over and, mm-hmm. and was just on the cusp of passing out and I really just made it my only objective to stay conscious um, until I got to the aid station, you know, which fortunately mm-hmm. was only about ten or fifteen minutes away If I was in Afghanistan when this happened, I'd probably be dead <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um, but it, You know, there's, there's so many elements to this and, uh, you know, the, the, one of the things is it it was, I, I I never had like, um, almost no physical pain whatsoever during this whole experience. It it was, Mm -hmm. it was bizarre in the sense that my body was basically in shock, Mm -hmm. but my mind was crystal clear and it, it was I can't say that I can really explain why it it was, Mm -hmm. it was like that, but, um, it it was just an incredible experience, but the type of pain that I I did experience was more of an anaerobic pain, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're, like you're doing the the fire breathing CrossFit workout and and just Mm -hmm. cannot Mm -hmm. stop. And and that's, that's what it felt like kind of in phase two,
1: (laughs) right? Interesting. Um, Yeah. your body just screaming for oxygen for blood. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Cause it's when you're dying of blood loss, you're really,
0: you're essentially suffocating. Right on. But um, a little bit of dark humor embedded a couple <laughs> elements of it throughout this. You know, my medic, I, you know, here I was in the back of this vehicle and, and just like fighting to stay conscious and, and, you know, breathing really shallow at that point. But, you know, suddenly the you know, I had a, I had a big wad of Copenhagen in when I got shot. Right. And, um, I didn't think to spit it out. I didn't even remember it was in there, but it, it obviously posed a choking hazard. And suddenly, you know, I, I feel this finger come into my mouth, sweep the Copenhagen out, throw it to the side and the kid just keeps going. Right. Just like nothing happened. And for, for that instant, like I, I stopped thinking about dying and, and all I could think of was, was man, here's this 19 year old kid in the middle of a catastrophic event, and he still remembered to do his secondary checks. Yeah, you know, he was just so much in the zone, and it, it was one of those just little moments that
1: even in that state, just put my mind at complete ease. Um, did, and, you ever, did you ever stop to think that maybe it was the nicotine that you had such clarity? <laughs> <laughs> it very well could have been. You provide it. You should provide a testimonial to Copenhagen. I,
0: I know. I've, I've thought about, it. <laughs> I've
1: thought about <laughs> it.
0: It was either that or, you know, back then, man, supplements were, were the thing, yeah. you know, pre-workout. We'd take like three scoops a day. So I, right.
1: you know, it could have been, uh, it could have been pre-workout that somehow kept me alive through this, That's right. <laughs> you know, too. But, um, so so now you got to the aid station and that and that's when you died, is that right? Or was yeah, it at the hospital.
0: You know, it, it was. Um, it, it, so this was a a very rogue, uh, what we call level two trauma facility. So they had just basic equipment and, and um, but a dynamite dynamite uh, trauma team uh, led by a, a, a trauma surgeon, mm. and this. Um, <laughs> I, by know, the way, it,
1: can I pause there. I met. I've met many doctors who, you know, were army reservists or, you know, even civilians who went into the army to be a trauma surgeon in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what an incredible service that these guys have provided. You know, I'd like to call out to them and say, thank you, you know, because I'm sure you've done many times. Well, you know, trauma doesn't discriminate.
0: Right. And when I say this, I mean, like emotional trauma, um, and the, the the thing about trauma units is they the vicarious trauma that they experience um, right. day in and day out over and over again uh, without any validation of their success most of the time right. you know t- typically right. a trauma team will get a faint pulse back if they're lucky and send the person to the next echelon of care hoping for the best right. and they they almost never get to see the results of their work uh, even though what they're doing is literally pulling off miracles in some cases and so you know so (laughs) one of the best days of my life was was actually when i went back to baghdad you know which is only about five months after this injury happened which is a whole another story but I, mm -hmm. i that trauma team was still there and i got to thank them in person for the work that they wow. did. And, uh, one of the just most emotionally powerful days I've ever had was, was being able to just say thank you in the flesh and blood wow. to them, you know, well, was, I'm sure I that still was get really chills. For them. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. All right. Yeah. So let's
1: go right to the heart of the matter that I've been dancing around. And, uh, what was it like? Like, so you, you flatlined for 15 minutes and yep. uh, walk us through that as best you can.
0: Yep, so that the kind of progression that I was describing continued when I was in the aid station. In, a, in an injury such as this, your, your body will actually pull blood to the chest cavity to protect the vital organs. And I could actually feel that happening. You know, the, the, the blood would basically creep out of my extremities. And as the blood left, they basically cramped up and became numb. And then that, that blood creeping sensation continued up through my thighs, and, and, and then they became numb. And when that feeling hit my stomach, that is the point where I realized the injury was getting out of control um, mm-hmm. for the first time. And I mean, at, at this point, we're probably about a minute or two away from the point that I flatlined. So, I mean, we're, we're pretty close here, but the, the, when that blood cream sensation hit my stomach, it felt like I was running one spins around a track and breathing through a straw and, and couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, and, and out of nowhere, I just started to repeat three names in my head over and over and over again, you know, for, for the the last 60 seconds of my life. And that was my mom and my two sisters. Mm. No idea why, it, it, you know, it wasn't like life flashed before my eyes, but I, I do think that something came to the surface of what was most important to me that uh, maybe prompted me to stay alive a little
1: longer or might even help bring me back. I mean, I don't know, you know, th- but- in the parlance of Unbeatable Mind, that was your why, and your why evoked a mantra, and that kept your mind focused on what it needed to be focused on at that point in time. That, that's a beautiful way to put it. <laughs> right on, right on.
0: You know, a few seconds later, I, I consciously knew that I was dying I, I, at that point, you know, and I literally, like, took my last breath, said my last thought, and, and died, and I, I always get the, you know, the most common question I obviously get is, did you have an out of body experience? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is, is no, I, I didn't, at, at least not what I can recall. Um, when I died, it literally faded to black and, and it was game over. But what I will say and what I did experience, I think, is, is maybe even more powerful than, you know, kind of the out of body experience where you're floating over your body or you see the white light or, or whatever it might be. Um, and I, I say, I say that because I know I was still conscious and, and it was in that last second or two. And the only way that I can describe that feeling is one of absolute and complete submission to something much greater than ourselves.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and in that submission <clears throat> was the most overwhelming sense of peace that I've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as if every good, every bad Every positive, every negative, every doubt, every
1: hope it it just vanishes as you, in that state you had no individualized sense of self, but you you just recollect an expansive awareness of this peaceful condition
0: it 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 was almost like being in a perfect state of zen you know a perfect state of mindfulness it it was um you know. The moment of my death was the most peaceful experience of my life, um, bar none. And, and it's interesting because it, it, what's so important about this, though, is that I didn't have a choice, right? right. Like the only choice I had was to submit. And in that, and when I say like truly absolute and complete submission, like there is there's no other other option, and and you know some people might think that's scary. You
1: didn't have time for anger or anything like that.
0: No, no. There's 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 no anger, no fear, no good, no bad. It, it was it was as if you're in this just completely balanced, submissive state, and and like your spirit becomes part of everything and nothing at the same time. Is is, is what it felt like, and you know that that may sound scary to some people, right? And understandably, but I I can tell you that. Like by far, (laughs) like, like to the point where it's, it's, it's almost difficult to describe how powerful that moment was and how peaceful it was, because it's as if all, um, I don't know, all all choices are removed, you know, and, and, and there, there is no good, there's no bad, there's, it's just perfection, you know, it it is, you know, and, and that's the best way I've come to describe it so far, (laughs) at least.
1: Let me ask a couple of questions. Sure. I mean, this, I mean, it's so awe-inspiring to hear that. You know, for someone like me who's studied Zen and meditation and tried to connect, you know, and have had experiences of connecting to that That void of, you know, what you're describing, this sounds exactly like a deep state of samadhi, you know, or, or, right. you know, or losing oneself into universal consciousness but you know of course that local experience of you still exists and you know you're going to snap back into it and you didn't have that you know so you were never going to you didn't at least you weren't (laughs) aware that you were going to be able to snap back into it right but my question is prior to this did you fear death (laughs) you know i would probably say uh at least like
0: subconsciously. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, granted you're, you know, I was 21. I was on cloud nine. You're, you're, um, so I, so this, this is a complicated answer and I'm, I'm not trying to complicate it, but it, it really is. It, it's one, there is a lot of bravado, especially at that age, right. Where, where you're, right. you're almost trained, uh, to suppress emotion and and be in a state where you almost have to be larger than life in order to, yeah. Uh, Grossman right.
1: talks about that in his books, right? Right, right. The, 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 training that, you know, kind of, especially at the young brain age, right. Which isn't fully executive function, not fully developed. You can kind right. of push fears to the side, but it doesn't mean they go away. Like you said. Right. right. You know,
0: what I would say is like leading
1: up to that moment,
0: um, in, in the deployment is, is where I would say like, you know, maybe, maybe that answer started to convert more to a no, um, and it's, I, I say that because, you know, anyone in the, the warrior professions, right, is exposed, you know, especially in environments like that, you're, you're exposed to just crippling situations of fear, you know, where, where it just grips every ounce of your body. And, and you know, within a, within a fraction of a second, you, you, you train yourself to be able to take that fear and suppress it, right, mm-hmm. over and over and over and over again. I, I, until you, you become so accustomed to you, you're, like emotionally numb. Mm-hmm. And I, I described that to people as I was probably, I, I was at my tactically, I was at my absolute best when I was the most emotionally numb and, and really stopped caring about living or dying. And, you know, when you let go of that fear of death, there's almost a great sense of freedom, uh, within that there's, there's almost a great sense of invincibility <laughs> and, um, that was, you know, couple that with the bravado of being 21, 22 years old. Uh, you know, it, it's all of those factors together, it, you know, might work really well for a short period of time in, in combat. And, and we're, we're good at training people to suppress and control their emotions. We're not very good at teaching them how to turn it back on when they get home, you know, mm-hmm. and. and and that's that's where a lot of these problems start to manifest throughout relationships and stuff. So so the short answer is i, I was emotionally numb, but I, I i would say that i did fear death based on what i know now and what i experienced then. Like cuz now i do not. But it's 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 at such a deeper spiritual level for the reasons that i do not where whereas i did not have that before.
1: Does that, does that make sense? It does. It does to me. I only publicly support companies and products that I personally use and have found valuable. So I wanted to tell you about Qualia. Now, I'm not a supplement geek. I don't find them useful if I'm fueling properly. But when it comes to my cognitive strength and brain health, I am excited about the emerging industry of nootropic supplements. I've been testing Qualia, designed by my friends at the Neurohacker Collective, for several months now. And it's on the bleeding edge of nootropic research and has become the one supplement that I won't go without on a daily basis. Qualia stimulates what's called broad-spectrum cognitive enhancement, which involves optimizing multiple cognitive variables simultaneously rather than focusing on a single variable. For example, it brings me greater ability to focus and makes me feel more connected while not diminishing my overall awareness of the environment. I experience a systematic enhancement of my brain's ability to take in and process information without any stimulating effect which would make me feel agitated like caffeine or depleted after the effect wears off. Now, for a busy entrepreneur and athlete like me, it's a no-brainer to invest in my brain health with Qualia. You can get on the Qualia bandwagon with me by visiting neurohacker.com, that's N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com, and use the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R, that's UNBEATABLEMIND15R, to get fifteen percent off the life of your order, trust me on this one—you won't be disappointed with Qualia. Gosh, I mean, I could I could stay on any one of these topics forever. And talk to you, <laughs> we've already been at this for an hour almost. So, oh, really? I really wow. I know. <laughs> you know, just so the listeners are aware, let's talk just a little bit about the you know, the actual, what happened, you know, the, the 15 minutes and then, you know, your recovery and stuff. And then I want to get into the healing work that you're doing and, and some of the, your message for those, uh, who have suffered from trauma, you know, whatever, at whatever level. So tell us, you know, finish the story, so to speak.
0: Yeah. So, so basically, you know, I was, um, I went back to Baghdad only about five months after this injury, you know, with everyone telling me not to. And it it was, it was almost like I was in a state of psychosis, you know, my mom literally got a call that said, your son's not going to make it through the night, get on a plane to Germany now, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to, to see him before he passes away. And, you know, four, four and a half months later, I'm leaving them behind again and, and almost had no awareness of their emotional state, uh, no ability to empathize back then, uh, you know, and, and it was. Um, well, part
1: of you must have just wanted to get, needed to get back into the fight, right? To, my, to yeah. You,
0: you know, what I would say, Mark, is bottom line here is is guilt is extremely powerful. Yeah. Um, and it can drive us to do things that are basically impossible and dangerous, you know, and I, I, I would say I wasn't ready to go back. I pulled stuff out of my medical records. I was you know, pulling staples out of my leg with a Gerber. I I didn't, it it was like nothing was going to stop me from getting back. And, you know, going through the course of writing this book and and the bottom line here is like, I would soon come to learn, uh, and it it takes some time for this, but I'd soon come to learn that the decade long emotional struggle that I would go through afterwards to try to find meaning in this second life was Mm. far more challenging than the experience of dying. No you know, kidding, and it, it it wasn't at all for the reasons of dying, you know. And and here's like a quick vignette that I think kind of captured this pretty well, and and this is something that that really didn't come out uh, for me until recently, and and it was by doing the deep work mm-hmm. to go through the process of writing this book uh, mm-hmm. for the last two years. And you know, to do that, I I didn't want this book to just be another war story. You know, there's tons and tons of people out there who have experiences that are just mind blowing. You know, as, as you well know, and um, I I wanted to somehow leverage this to to be a benefit for for other people in the field of emotional trauma. And you know, to to do that, I. I realized that I could explain things to people in a three four hour conversation, right? I, I could I could get through to somebody struggling, but how do we do that in scale? And you know, I've worked both on the behavioral health side and in, in, in the military. I've worked there in the private sector, and what's concerning is like even within the clinical community, trauma is not very well understood. Mm-hmm. Many don't have the the ability or or maybe the, the level of empathy needed to uh, go deep enough to, to, to look at these experiences through, uh, the lens of shame and guilt and powerlessness and betrayal, which are really the overriding emotions. And, um, so to get to that point, I really had to deliberately stay with the demons that were in my life long enough to understand Mm -hmm. them, describe them and, and be productive for other people. And, You know, one of the things that emerged from that is—is is, you know, I, I started asking myself the hard questions. Why was I so driven to go back to Baghdad so fast? You know, what was it? Was it survivor's guilt that Marlon died and I didn't? You know, because that's kind of what I defaulted to. You know, because everybody else around me was assuming that. Every everybody else around me was assuming that this isolated experience of dying and coming back to life was was surely a traumatic experience, and it it took me 10 years to really internalize and validate for myself that that experience in isolation wasn't that traumatic for me. Right. Mm. And, That's and I'm, shocking. yeah, you know, and, and I'm not saying that to sound like a, <laughs> some kind of macho male guy or, you know, yeah. I, I, like not at all. It's it, I, I couldn't be more sincere about it with the exception of losing Marlon that day, of course, mm-hmm. you know, Many of the facets surrounding that experience were, were actually very positive. You know, I, mm-hmm. I got to witness people um, just performing brilliantly in the face of adversity and uh, mm-hmm. so many positive things that every echelon were, were, came out of that and, you know, it gave us a platform to help a lot of people. But,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> you hey, know, let j- me ask a question have you had a sense that i mean you you are dead for 15 minutes and you know i i've dealt with that as well where you know we've tried to recover someone and you just keep going and you want to keep going cuz you just can't believe that they're not going to in the next moment snap back but usually after seven or eight minutes you know the the trauma team will move on do you have a sense that perhaps you know it was your destiny to you know to teach emotional trauma emotional development and you know this death was part of that experience and, you know, so that the, the trauma team was kind of guided in some way to, to keep working until you found your way back.
0: You know, that's, um, Mark, there was a lot of very odd things that happened that day, yeah. you know, like they pulled out the, the, they literally just got defibrillator paddles in that morning and had to take them out of the plastic to use them on me, you know, Wow. There just so happened to be a, like this 18, 19-year-old private first class who was a former football player. You know, the kid weighed about 250, 260. He was the one doing CPR on me, you know, for 15 mm. straight minutes. Wow. Um, you know, and when I went back, first question I asked that surgical team is, you know, why did you work on a dead guy for 15 minutes? You know, this is impossible. And his he, he, three-word response, we never quit, hmm. Right. And I mean, obviously, there were, like you said, there would have been a point where they would have had to, right? But he, he, his thought was you were conscious when you got here, you died on the table, which is definitely one of the factors that helped because uh, they were able to start CPR and, and you know, immediately. But it, it, it's – what I will say is that this this um, this experience has – uh, what's so bizarre about it is, is one, yes, you know, after the six minute mark is when most surgeons will call it on a patient. Cause that's when catastrophic brain damage sets in. And I walked out without a trace of brain damage. I walked out with full recollection of the event. I somehow kept my leg. Like the, the only, the only thing I have here is a bunch of scars, you know, and, that's incredible.
1: you know, and it's like, it you was. Think, by the way, in the military, has that changed the thinking about how long, you know, to perform CPR, you know, not just assuming that, you know, people are going to go brain dead after six minutes. Clearly that's not true. You know what I mean? That, that must be an old, you know, military or uh, medical wives tale.
0: You know, I, I, um, what I'll say is like, I, I really believe that our trauma teams are, are just the absolute best in the world. I, you Mm -hmm. know, they, they have literally pulled off miracles. And, you know, especially within those trauma units is, is where a lot of the modern day techniques that are widespread across the medical community are, are bred, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're setting the example, they're setting the stage. So I've heard a few more cases of people who are kind of flatlining for like 20 minutes and, you know, this is ranges from civilian world to military to, to whatever, but just to, to have all of those components there is what's, it's something that i i don't believe that i'll ever necessarily understand right it, mm. but it is it is absolutely tied to the overarching purpose of my life which you know again like there's a 10 year emotional journey here that was filled with suicidal spirals and depressive states and anxiety and uh relationship break you know trauma is not always what it seems <laughs> you know and and um it, it took uh, really reaching, you know, you know what, what Tole would call a limit situation, you know, where, where you truly feel that you have nothing.
1: And, and that's, mm-hmm. that's where this, this clarity starts to come through, yeah. you know. If that's when you become born again, so to speak, to your new self. Right. right. <laughs> the deeper self. exactly you you outline um in your book darker souls a healing path and trauma isn't what it always seems is the first kind of element to that talk about that a little bit more and then let's go let's uh, go through the path as a way to kind of help others understand both what you went through and how you've kind of processed this experience so that you could help others who are you know struck with some sort of traumatic event sure just really, the overarching statement here, right, is everything we're about to discuss. Like, it, it
0: doesn't, it doesn't really require any action, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. conceptual, and and I found that it took a to book just to get to that point, mm-hmm. um, because you know, to give people help, give people permission to recognize and validate the true source of their pain, right? Shame and guilt—they have one major weakness, and that's when you shine light on it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that, that weakness is really exploited through the power of human connection, the connection we share with each other. So with respect to that, the trauma, not always what it seems is, is absolutely <laughs> pivotal in, in my life. And it's, you know, that goes back to everyone around me to the point where I started to believe it myself really believe that, that, you know, this, this traumatic, this experience of dying, getting shot, coming back to life was the pinnacle of trauma, right? It's like the Holy Grail of trauma. Yeah. Mm. Well, it, it, to me, it wasn't, you know, if you look at, um, one, if you look at how I define trauma, which is an experience or situation that fundamentally alters the way you believe the world should work. <laughs> right,
1: right? <laughs> right? I like that, that's awesome.
0: It, you know th- that is a that is an element that I knew that something like that could happen. I knew I could die. I knew my I knew my boys could die. you know, I, I, I knew so so, and I, I kind of see that a lot in the first responder world and and in the military world. you know, it, it's service members, police officers, firefighters, they they'll get confused because the events that they're experiencing seem traumatic on the surface but the events that tend to bring us down are, are seem so minuscule in comparison to them and we don't understand why. Yeah. Well th- the point here is that to to really get at the root cause of trauma we have to be looking at a spiritual and moral level. We mm-hmm. we need to be looking at e- at these incidents through the lens of moral wounds like shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. You know which are really the master emotions. And and that's when we can find clarity. So you know, for for me, like I, kind of revisiting what I was, what I was talking about a couple of minutes ago, the experience that, you know, I asked myself those hard questions, one of which was, why did I go back to Baghdad so fast? You know, what was, you know, and for years I used to say, I went back because of my men, you know, they needed leadership and, and there was absolutely truth to that, right? And I went back so I could prove to myself that I could get back on the horse and still perform my job. Certainly truth to that. But there was always something deeper there, and I I couldn't put my finger on it until recently. And and, and I was driven to go back because of guilt, Mm -hmm. right? Not in the form of survivor's guilt, all right? Walter Reed is an incredibly, one, the medical care there, like nowhere else in the world I'd rather be. It was phenomenal, you know, but very difficult place to be. You're surrounded by some of the worst injuries you can fathom. um, And I was one of the very few, that was expected to make a full recovery, you know, wow. and the image that I'll never forget. And, and I don't want to is, you know, I remember seeing this, this walking around a corner and seeing this beautiful blonde 20 something year old uh, woman pushing around her new double amputee fiance in a wheelchair, oh. you know, and, and it's like, so I, I was, I was guilty in my ability to heal where others couldn't. And I was also guilty for not being with my men. So it was almost this like perpetual force that, that drove me to do this impossible thing. And and that's, that's what I'm talking about. You know, it's like those, you know, when you really dissect and do the true detective work, you know, revisiting everything from childhood forward, it's, it's really important to take an honest look at how you truly feel (laughs) about those experiences, you know, which is not an easy thing to do, getting in touch with your own emotions. I mean, the hardest question I've ever been asked is, how do you feel?
1: Um, you know, so. <laughs> great. I feel great. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> I <haven't laughs> now, I, I got a question. So, the next two concepts you talk about is that trauma is complex. I think we've kind of… We've hit that, yeah. You know, kind of hit that. And it's also cumulative. You just talked about that. And most people, mo- I would say most people have some form of trauma in their life that is complex, cumulative, and is not what it seems but we want to know, I think and probably one of your, your main messages is, you know, you don't have to wait to have a near-death experience to investigate it. Right. Right. So what can be like a major motivation? I know for you, the NDE and your experiences forced you to investigate it, right? Right. And so that's the, that's the beauty of that experience in your life, as painful as it was. But for other people, you know, how do, how, do you, how do they step into the courage to investigate their own trauma
0: boy is that a great question you know and what's interesting is it wasn't the near-death experience that drove me to do this interesting you know I mean frankly it was the opposite like I was quote-unquote good (laughs) after that you know I wasn't trying to suppress anything I wasn't deliberately or intentionally trying to do anything but you know at the same time I, I wasn't having kind of the what I call the PowerPoint symptoms of post-traumatic stress, right? The stuff stuff we all get briefed on, on PowerPoint slides, you know, the anxiety and nightmares and night sweats and Mm -hmm. jumpy loud booms and all that stuff. I, I, which that's certainly very prevalent in some lives, you know, but for me it wasn't. And yet I was still found myself repeatedly, you know, three very distinct times in, in just, dangerous suicidal spirals. I mean that uh, the only thing that stopped me was my little sister, you know, and like trying to explain that to her, (laughs)
1: you know, and what was interesting though is the same why that kept you alive in Iraq was the why that kept you from powerful. That's powerful. I've I've never
0: worded that like that before. So thank you for that. um, (laughs) But it's, it's true, you know, and, and what's interesting though is every every one of those spirals, the, the catalyst, right. Not, not the cause, but the catalyst was a failed relationship, hmm. you know, and, and failed like at least on my part of that, right. Was typically associated with, you know, lack of intimacy and emotional withdrawal. You know, uh-huh. a lot of those relationships look perfect on paper, but you know, there's, there's a great quote by, a guy named John Bradshaw, who passed away last year, and he was one of the original guys who really, psychologists, who really dove into explaining shame. Right. And I he says,
1: great.
0: Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you might recall, you know, he says in there that to a shame based person, mm-hmm. right, meaning to, to a person who is carrying unresolved shame, unresolved trauma, abandonment in relationships is akin to death. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have uh, rejected ourselves. And when somebody else rejects us, it only reinforces that we are worth less than someone else, mm-hmm. right? right? So pretty frequently find that a lot of these issues tend to surface and manifest in relationships. Those moments where I was at my weakest in those spirals happen you know, just progressively got worse and worse over the years until I hit a point where it was, it was truly the rock bottom, um, where I literally could not see past an hour. You know, I couldn't see past a day. I had no clue. It, it, it was just complete fog. And that lasted for a couple of weeks, you know, and it was somehow in those, in those extreme moments is, is where I really found the clarity to, and the strength to do the deep work. And I, I you know, cause I realized that everything that happened over the last 10 years, regardless of Excelling my career, you know regardless of being this kind of image of resilience to to the larger public's eye, whatever I was doing was not good enough for me, right There was something much deeper there that that I couldn't identify, and that people around me, even some of the best clinicians in the world <laughs> that I was working with couldn't identify so that responsibility came with me at that point, you know where i I consciously needed to do that deep work to
1: mm-hmm. find out the truth, right? The truth behind trauma, <laughs> you know, and then hopefully you um, talk about the, the absolute need to have a team to, hmm. um, to rely on and healing and that, you know, that it's going to, it's going to require suffering. So, you know, embrace the suck and <laughs> suffer productively is what you say. So let's talk about that and then we'll have to wrap up soon.
0: Right. Oh, that's a good place to wrap. Cause I, I think it's, yeah. you know, we've, we've had so many, you know, we always encounter people, especially in these professions, because there is still stigma around, for a variety of reasons, uh, stigma around seeking help. You know, um, sometimes that's a fear of what others will think. But I think more importantly, it's a fear of, or not even a fear, it's the emotions we're experiencing are so incredibly complex that we cannot put them into words. And, you know, which, which I think is really a barrier to to a lot of people seeking treatment. And mm-hmm. One thing that I find that gets through to to, to some is is just thinking about it a little bit differently, you know. And and the the best definition of therapy I ever got was from a lady lady, Laurie Galperine uh, out here in Monterey. And I was shadowing a group session with her one day, and you know she's going through a process, and suddenly just said that she believes the role of a therapist is to help people suffer productively, as opposed to allowing them to suffer in vain. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I've never heard of a more powerful definition of, of the true nature of what therapy really is than that. You know, we all uh, suffer throughout our lives, you know, and I know you, you're a fan of uh, uh, Frankel as well, you know, I, 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 you know, and suffering is, is inherent to our lives. Um, at some point in time, if we, if we go through the process and do the work, there will be a point where you can start to derive meaning in that suffering, right. uh, which ultimately makes you so much more powerful, but it's it's not a process that you need to go through alone, right? A- right. And right. there's so many different false and dangerous paths that you could take, some of which can be fatal, right? Mm-hmm. But with the presence of of sometimes a, a at least a, a friend with a very good perspective on this, or or in some cases a, a trained you know therapist or clinician you know, they're not going to try to fix your problems. They can't, only you can, right? Only you can derive that meaning out of it. But what they can do is, is offer you a different perspective that could help you avoid some of those false paths, right? Harness your energy a little bit differently and, and, you know, truly suffer more productively. Like it's going to suck anyway,
1: (laughs) right? It really will. The teammates can reflect back your true nature to you, which is the nature that you touched in on in the near-death experience the the vast ocean of love that you know every human being essentially is at their deepest level and right. so being alone and unable to connect with that is is it's very difficult if not impossible to heal and that's what Viktor Frankl was talking yep. about <laughs> in his book search for man search for meaning you now have that teammate to reflect back your own goodness right right <laughs> yeah incredible story and yeah. then the, the law of contrast right so that suffering allows you to appreciate the beauty even more. So that's a nice thing to remember as well.
0: You know, that's it, a kind of a beautiful thing to close with there because it's, it's I appreciate and respect every one of my experiences leading up to this point in my life because it gave me the capacity to empathize with others on a much deeper level. It gave me the opportunity to help people, right, which is, is where I find the greatest meaning in life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's where I find beauty within the darkness. So that is the beauty of a
1: darker soul, <laughs> right? Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much for your uh, work and for your example. Um, your book, darker souls, I, is it out in uh, available at Amazon and normal outlets?
0: Oh, uh, um, so you can pre-order just the digital version right now. We're, we're wrapping up the pre-publication review at the Pentagon. So I should be getting that back any day. And, okay. you know, we're expecting to publish in August timeframe. frame.
1: Okay. So, well, well, we'll support the launch of the book to get the word out. But if you guys listening, want to go and pre-order it, that's great. And um, I imagine you get to read a chapter or something. Uh, usually you get to see an advanced peak or something like that. That's kind of cool.
0: That's going to come out soon, <laughs> as soon as we get it cleared by the Pentagon. You know, And I, I will say, too, that I'm dedicating 100% of the profits uh, for all pre-orders and sales during the first week to uh, a group down in Southern California called the Integrated Recovery Foundation. Uh, nice. Which is a treatment center stood up by Ron Gellis, oldest active competitor of the CrossFit Games. The guy's a champ. Yeah, I know Ron. Myself. You know Ron? Yeah. So it's, I mean, this is going, yeah, going to. Sure Ron, to do. Yeah. yeah, it's going to Ron's organization. You know, and, and he set up a beautiful okay. treatment facility to help women uh, who were sexually assaulted in the military receive quality treatment. So uh, very needed okay. resource, and
1: try to. I'm f- going to connect with him, to support that as well. That's awesome. Right on. So. Also, I'm hoping to see you at the Unbeatable Mind Summit. So we need to talk about that. Let's make it
0: happen. <laughs>
1: yeah, I would love to see you there. I'd love to have you present a little bit. And then I know that also you're going to be with my buddy, fellow warrior Greg Amundsen, the original fire breather, on August <laughs> 6th. Is that right? Right. I, you know, I yeah. cannot wait. Uh, yeah, so... If you want to see Gre- Greg and uh, Joshua, two incredible uh, spiritual warriors, then August 6th at Gra- Cross Amundsen, he's having a little get together, and my stepdaughter Catherine is going to be leading some Kokoro Yoga as well. It's awesome! Right? That's awesome! So that'll be a lot of fun. All right, Joshua. Once again, we thank you, uh, and uh, we're committed to supporting you on your journey and um, and your mission. We so, hey. are. Yeah.
0: Mark, thanks so much. And, and likewise, brother. <laughs> so look, look, looking forward to, to supporting you as well.
1: All right. Likewise. Hoo-yah. All right. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Darker Souls, Joshua Mance, what an incredible guy and what an incredible story. Um, but like he says, this isn't about uh, us or him anymore. It's really about getting the word out to help everyone heal, to help the world become a better place. Right, right on. So we're all going to do our part and you'll do yours, and we're in this together. One big team. Right on. Joshua, thanks very much. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Enough said on that point. Coach Devine out. Hooyah. ya. it
0: boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back. The pride of the fleets. The bright swinging frogmen. You take me <laughs>